Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with performance consultant and owner of the McCaw Method, Alistair McCaw. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 68 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Alistair McCall, who is a performance consultant with experience in squash, hockey, motorsports, loads of different sports. So in the podcast we discuss all his experience, working with the likes of Kevin Anderson, in the, uh, in, who's in the top 15 in, uh, in men's tennis. So it's really great, really interesting chat with Alistair and something that I wanted to focus on in the, in the chat was his, his role as a consultant. So being self-employed and the, the kind of struggles that, um, that, that go with that kind of situation, not being, not being employed by a, a team or a, <clears throat> or a single individual. So just before we get going, um, just want to thank the two sponsors for the podcast today, which are Train With Push and Vald Performance, who are the makers of the Nordboard. So both um, both products have, obviously, the Nordboard's just launched. So if you are interested in getting to know more about the Nordboard, what's it about, who's behind it, um, the kind of things you can do with it, just get over to valdperformance.com and get in touch with them guys and they will point you in the right direction and let you know anything you need to know about the Nordboard. So really exciting opportunity um, to uh, to get involved there. So train with push. Uh, obviously makers of the push band have come out with version 2.2.0 of their of their app, which I actually used in the gym this morning, and it's a great addition to the uh, to the push band. So workflow really really good. Um, options on it really really good. So if you are interested in getting a push band. It's definitely worth speaking to them guys. I know they're doing uh, an extended live chat about the about 2.0. So if you get in touch with them guys at trainwithpush.com, they'll obviously answer all your questions regarding the uh, regarding the push band. So again, thanks for tuning in to episode 68. As always, would love your feedback on this episode and the 67 that have gone before it. And I will speak to you soon. Today on the Pacey Performance Podcast, we have Alistair McCaw. So just before we get going and get Alistair in and have a, have a good chat, I'm just going to uh, firstly thank him for his time uh, late on a Sunday evening for me, probably mid-afternoon for him. So welcome to the podcast, Alistair. Honored to be here. Thanks so much, Rob, and um, thanks for all you do for us coaches. Pleasure. So... I just want to get you in straight away, get me off the, off the mic instantly, um, and just get you to give us a little bit of information on your background, uh, your education, and, and what you're currently doing. Okay. Um, I was actually born in Northern Ireland uh, and then was brought up in, in South Africa from the age of six. Um, been traveling the world since the age of 20. Um, I did a sports management degree. I studied through the uh, ISSA in, in Colorado, a, a sports science uh, degree. But um, 
I would say most of my education has really come from work on the road and, and, and just getting out there and, and getting in the trenches. Uh, but I still do have a, a great thirst and hunger to learn. Uh, just for example, two weeks ago, I completed my USA Youth Basketball uh, coaching certification and course. And um, really, that's, that's I know it's not maybe the most glamorous education list out there compared to to some of your other other speakers and, and, and guys and girls you've had on the podcast, but uh, I'd say the world and, and the trenches has been my education. Mm -hmm. Cool. I mean, what what I mean, we we spoke at length before we came in. Air. It, it kind of intrigues me that your kind of your um, your own brand, which which obviously we, we spoke at length about, but that that kind of intrigues me. I'm just looking at your your profile on your on your site, and there's. There's world number one ranked um, players that in, in tennis, squash, um, amateur champions in golf, rugby, cricket, ice hockey, motorsports, triathlon. So you've got tons of experience in tons of different sports. So you just want to talk to us a little bit about your kind of brand as a as a person and just how that's kind of developed and how you've got to work with all these these great athletes. Sure. Um, you know, I started. I started pretty young. I've been already uh, in the coaching business for 22 years, and um, uh, played a high level of sport myself. I, I represented my country in duathlon and triathlon for for five world championships. Um, anybody that knows that's been in professional sport, you get to meet another uh, a lot of other athletes as well so uh, but from a young age I knew I wanted to go into coaching I had a passion for for leadership and and for making other people better so um, I, I my, one of my first professional athletes was a tennis player uh, back in 94 and that was in South Africa and then from there it, it just basically uh, rolled into other sports um, of course the big sports in South Africa being cricket and rugby I got to work with the captain of, of the South African cricket team Graham Smith uh, the former captain of the, the South African team James Dalton and just met a whole lot of other athletes through through these guys and and uh, and and, and uh, girls that, that were professional athletes, um, had the privilege to work with the 2003 Dutch national cricket team, uh, the Dutch tennis federation, uh, and then a whole lot of other athletes in in, in golf and and as you just mentioned, their motorsport, uh, 24 Le, uh, Limon uh, car drivers. Uh, even Canadian hockey players, uh, Perry Dakar, motorsport athletes. So it's really just been a, a fantastic ride for me, and I've been truly blessed to have worked with with these kind of athletes. So I've, I've just written down there um, about being self-employed. So I mean, everyone kind of seems to want the, especially in England, want the dream of working the Premier League. Um, obviously, contracted to that to that club, but how how easy is it? To be that self-employed guy, to be that that kind of kind of brought in as a as a consultant. How does how does one job lead to the next? Is there a lot of work? Is it people contacting you? Is it you going out and seeking seeking contracts? How does that how does that work? Well, I think you you know I think Rob, the most important thing, and this is very important for all those young coaches out there to understand, is that 
you've got to earn your, your stripes and you've got to put in the work. Um, you know, so many young coaches these days want to walk into that, that perfect job or just like you said, that, that premiership team or, or that premiership rugby team, whatever it may be. Um, but it takes time. And, and this business, the sooner you get to know this, the better because it's all about people skills. It's about your interpersonal skills. Um, for me, it's really uh, 80% of your networking, uh, getting on with others, working in a team environment, and it's 20% really knowledge. Uh, you know, I would, if I was to say that was the 80-20 of coaching, it's 80% people skills and, and 20% knowledge. So, but to answer your question, it, it, is, it can be a challenge sometimes to be a, a one-man band, so to say. It has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, you know, sometimes, for example, I'll work with, with a professional tennis player and they don't want you working with um, another high-ranked player because that's their competition. And that, that's the same in golf and, and the same in squash. Um, you know, they, they're a very protective uh, culture in, in professional sport. They don't want to get their secrets out and, and how they train and, and so on and so forth. And again, that, that's where it comes down to trust. Uh, great coaches uh, are able to build up a great level of trust and, and, um, and, and have that great uh, relationship with their athletes. So, yeah, it does have its chance, uh, its um, disadvantages being alone. Uh, you don't have the protection of, of, so to say, earning a set salary. So it can go from month to month where, where it's a, a great month and then a, a lesser month, so to say. Mm -hmm. So another thing that's on your um... – I'm loving this about page about you, by the way. Um, <laughs> South Africa's fittest man in 2000 and 2001. Talk to, talk Long to time us, ago. Talk to <laughs> us to this accolade. Uh, yeah, funny thing. Um, you know, the sport of triathlon and triathlon, you can win a, a national race. I was also the two-time junior, junior national champion, and you'd maybe go away with uh, 50 bucks in your pocket. <laughs> and you'd probably spend that 50 bucks the next day at the, uh, the physios and the doctors because you'd absolutely put your body through, uh, through everything to, to get that win. But, um, yeah, it's, I did it more for the money, <laughs> so to say. But it was a fantastic event that was, that was organized in South Africa. They got the top two athletes or fittest athletes from every sport. So we had um, two guys from the, the South African rugby team, cricket team, uh, two boxers, two of the fittest golf players, which uh, didn't fare too, too great on the, um, the uh, endurance and speed test. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Um, and it was such a really fun event and uh, I won it that year and with the money I was able to uh, put some furniture in my apartment <laughs> and, and then the next year I, I went back and, um, and backed it up which was, which was great fun so yeah that was but that was a long time ago wow <laughs> Well, 16 years ago. Wow. Thanks for the reminder. No, <laughs> um, so just one more thing. Um, what did I pick up? Oh, yeah. So obviously being self-employed, again, we chatted about this beforehand, but just we spoke about Ron McKee for his book, um, CEO Strength Coach, and, and the kind of the lessons that you learn being a, being a one-man band, your, your own ad agency, your own kind of marketing team, your own social mm. media team, all these different things. And, and I, I suppose I've had a little bit of exposure to that as well, um, doing the, you know, the podcast and, and the website and things. But 
how important do you think that is for for people to, especially for younger coaches, to actually realize that it's not all about just seeing how many sets and reps you you, you know your athlete's gonna gonna do. It's it's there's a bigger pitch than 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 that. Well, th- that's exactly on the mark, uh, Rob. You know, I always say it's not about the X's and O's. It's about the S's and P's. And that's about your standards and, and being able to work with people. And, um, you know, it, it all starts with the standards you set for yourself. Um, you, you know, from a personal point of view, the standards you have for your organization or your company, let's say, and the standards that you have for your athletes that you train. And that's really where, where your foundation is. But, um yeah, as you just said, you, you are all these things in one in terms of you're a salesman, you're a marketer, you're a psychologist, um, you're, you're in leadership, you're in, in especially in behavior management, especially with the athletes. So it's so important to, to look at all these other areas and, and self-develop yourself, you know. Um, there's so many coaches out there. And I just did a, a conference in London last uh, in December with, with the uh, – a football conference and you know I asked for a show of hands of how many uh, coaches look into other sports or, or other coaches for, for ideas and and maybe 15 out of the 70 attendees put their hands up and you know it's something I call blinker coaches don't become a blinker coach a blinker coach is someone that just is really just absorbed in their own sport or their own field and um, you know being 22 years in the industry now I'm getting most of my ideas and fresh new ideas, which my athletes appreciate, from other sports and from other other industries. For example, um, I've I've even been looking into the Moscow uh, Bolshoi Ballet Academy to see how they teach their 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 um, ballet dancers because their standards are so high in that tradition and culture. So you know, look into other industries. Read other books, create a, a, an interest for other things in other fields and not just the sport or, or the area you're in. Of course, it's important to learn from uh, people in our industry and, and, and we've got so many great people out there, Mark Verstegen, uh, Mike Boyle, uh, David Joyce, uh, Ron McKeefe, as you are just talking about now, all these, these fantastic um, coaches out there who've, been, you know, who, who've done it all and seen it all and, and and what's so amazing about them as well is that, you know, they just keep learning and they're just their thirst and hunger to keep, keep understanding more. And I think that's the important thing and the message for young coaches out there is um, broaden your horizon. Just don't be a, a blinker coach and, and, you know, for example, if you're just in rugby, uh, look to other sports. And, and here's another, another thing is that the best coaches in the world, uh, for example, Pep Guardiola, he gets a lot of his influence and a lot of um, of ideas from a, a guy called Julio Ferlasco, who's actually an Iranian volleyball coach. Now that's Pep Guardiola, probably one of the most, uh, the biggest name in in football management. Um, Eddie Jones, who's just become the England rugby rugby manager, he gets his some of his ideas from the Belgium Hockey Federation, from from the Women's Hockey Federation. So, you know, just. Uh, widen your scope and and look into other sports and and you know just keep learning. That is um, the most important thing for for young coaches, especially. And I, I well, e- even now that I'm um, into my forties, um, I still have that same 
that same outlook is every morning I want to wake up and learn and I don't care where it comes from. Um, you'll, you'll see on my Twitter feed I'm following uh, people in, in so many different industries and, and different sports and it's just incredible what you can learn, uh, let's say, outside the box. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, you mentioned there just, just um, picking up on the last thing you said really. I mean, you mentioned like Eddie Jones looking to different sports, um, Pep, Guardiola, Pep Guardiola looking at different sports. How how important is it to look completely outside of sport, period? Looking at business, looking at different industries. I mean, I, I put a, a thing out on Twitter over Christmas and, and you answered my, my tweet with regards to, to books. And mm. I put strictly no strength and conditioning, no sports science. I, I, I'm figuring out and, and learning that we need to look completely outside because people are doing such great things that are so transferable. Is there any, I mean, you might read off the books that you mentioned to me, but is there any resources or, or books or people or industries that you've really tapped into to, to get transferable skills and knowledge? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just like I mentioned there now with, with a ballet school in, in, in Moscow, uh, even the Berlin Music Academy, because it, it all comes down to learning skills. If, if you want to be a great athlete or, or uh, play the guitar or play an instrument well, for example, so it really comes down to that same thing. And, you know, a great book that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have read or have heard of is The Talent Code from Daniel Coyle, where it explains uh, all the hotbeds of the different activities like, uh, you know, why do the best violin players come from China? Why do the best uh, soccer players come from or the football players come from Brazil, for example? Why did Russia have that explosion with, with the best tennis players in the late 90s and early 2000s? So, um, you, know, it's, you know, as I said, it's important to look on outside other areas. I've really in the last five years um, probably increased my reading uh, or should I say my library outside of sports so self-development books books from guys like John Maxwell Darren Hardy um, a great book I'm reading at the moment is Essentialism which is a fantastic book to just really just uh, zoom in on those those important areas that really matter and become the best at them you know find that uh, find that one thing you really love and you're really good at and and Go work at it, and that's how you become an expert in, in a particular area. You cannot be this person of, of everything and, and, and try and, and do every single job you can. You've got to really go specialize if you want to be the best in your industry. So um, other books I've been reading, uh, The One Thing is a, is a great book. Um, the Slight Edge by Jeff Olson is a fantastic book just talking about those marginal gains a little bit on the same lines as as Dave Brailsford from the Sky uh, Cycling Team of just putting in those little bits every day and then accumulating over time and uh, yeah, that's another thing people get impatient they're not uh, they're not willing to put in the time and and put in the effort and uh, the, you know they want to see results they want instant gratification and you've got to understand to become great anything takes a long time and it takes um, a lot of effort as well hmm. cool so uh, I, I did a thing on well I put a, um, a tweet out on, on Twitter obviously uh, looking for, for questions that people might want to ask you uh, I don't know why I don't do this more often to be honest but because we get some great people kind of chiming in with uh, with different questions and one thing I don't want to do is kind of pigeonhole you into 
into being a tennis coach? Because I know, as we've spoke about earlier, there's there's been so many sports that you you have been involved in and you're currently involved in. But because you're known for the tennis um, stuff at the minute, obviously a lot of the questions uh, focus around tennis. So there was there's one from um, there was one from Gary Hutt, which I think is a, a, a Derby University, um, which kind of starts us off quite nicely. And it just looked he was asking about challenges faced specifically by tennis players, um, both on and off the court. So is there anything that you've come across um, in, in your experience of working with tennis players that is quite specific to them in regards to challenges yeah. they face? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, absolutely. The first thing that comes to mind is obviously their, their, their schedule, their travel schedule, because, uh, you know, looking at the, the calendar this year, they are three to four weeks in Australia, down in the subcontinent, then they're back in Europe, you know, so you're going from a climate of uh, 90 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit back to maybe 50 or 60 or even cooler. Um, Then March, back to the United States, April, back to Europe, Uh, August, back to the United States, September, uh, Japan and Asia. So you can just see the, the travel schedule there, the time zones, uh, all these things play a huge factor. So today's professional athlete, especially those that are that have an, a crazy travel travel schedule, are looking for performance trainers and people that can advise them not only on the exercises and drills, but that whole bigger picture. Um, something I've done in my career is just try to just uh, be around the best in the business, be it coaches, physiotherapists, uh, trainers, managers, agents, whatever it may be, and, and just learn how uh, everything is put together and what the best choices are for those athletes. Um, you know, working with professional athletes, it's, it's you never shut down because I'll have a player, uh, which I do right now in Australia, and it's, um, I don't know, it's probably three o'clock in the afternoon there uh, right, right now. So I've got to have my phone on at night because he might need to ask something with regards um, a, tr- a training exercise that he, he's not too sure about or uh, what he should be eating before the match tomorrow or etc. You know, So it's so important that we stay on top of these things. Mm-hmm. So is it you can say who you're working with in Australia? Or is that a, is that a bit of a, you know, it's got to be captain to wraps? With regards to with regards to players, can you say the names of these guys? Yes. Okay. No, not at all. It's uh, Kevin. Yeah, that's no problem. It's uh, Kevin Anderson. He um he reached the top ten this year for the first time, and uh, he um he had a great win against your your boy uh, Andy Murray at, at the U.S. Open. So um sorry sorry for that, guys. But uh, <laughs> when he, when he loses, he's Scottish. Alistair, when he loses, he's Scottish, <laughs> and when he's uh, when he wins, he's from the U.K. So he was Scot- He must have been Scottish that day. So. Uh, we're all right. We're clear. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, it's funny because um, I, I see also supports Arsenal. So I just, it's, it's a funny connection. I thought maybe it'd be a Rangers supporter or, uh, or even a Manchester United supporter because I know he's pretty close with, with Alex Ferguson. So, but Andy's, Andy's a top guy. I know we're, we're um, jumping off the subject there a little bit, but talk about a hard worker and someone that uh, I feel is going to at least win another three or four Grand Slams. So. Um, yeah, definitely. He's got to do it for the UK, Alistair. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just with regards to your work with Kevin Anderson, how, how much, how much, um, 
kind of contact do you have with him? Is it do you just fly out for for grand slams and tournaments and things, and, and then you're on the phone the rest of the time, or how, how does it work? Well, with my schedule now, I do a lot of uh, speaking engagements now um, yeah, and clinics and so on. That's where a lot of my attention has gone into. So I will see Kevin when he comes back to Florida for for training and for uh, changing of the program, et cetera. Uh, we're in daily contact. It's it's every single day. Um, he has a team with him there right now. He has a coach and, and a physiotherapist, a a German guy who worked with uh, Tommy Haas, who was a, a former number two in the world. So he's got a great team there. Uh, we have open communication. It's it's just really really works well. It's it's uh, the team communicate every day, and we're all on the same page. No egos. And um, I think that's been a huge part of, of Kevin's success. Uh, he, of course, he works hard. He's put the time in. But the team around him, um, you know, just the way we work together is, is incredible. And it's, it's a privilege to be part of, a part of that team and to see what a cohesive um, team and, uh, can do for, for an athlete, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So just to just to move on to another um, another question that was posted on on Twitter by uh, by James Daly, who's doing a, a fantastic job with another podcast, by the way. Um, so how do you deal with the symmetrical nature of tennis from an S and C standpoint? Yep, definitely. Tennis is one of those sports where um, there's an incredible load of imbalances, especially with kids between the age of ten and twelve. It's that growth spurt stage where the flexibility is poor. They've got a dominant hip. They've got a dominant shoulder. So, you know, it's on the same lines as as golf as well. So I really try to work with a lot of unilateral type of training. So um, single leg work, for example, to, to bring those balances up on both sides of the body. Um, when I look at an athlete, uh, you know, first thing I check are the ankles because that's where a lot of the issues will be or starting. So... F- from the ground up, let's say, go up the kinetic chain. Um, I'm, I'm also a big believer in, chiropr- in uh, chiropractor, working with the athletes once a, once a month for alignment because for me, it all the, the issues all, all start and end there with, with posture. If there's a poor posture and, and misalignment, then you know, you're know you just a, an injury waiting to be happened. So, um, yeah, a lot of unilateral work um, and, um, and, and hip and core, core work as well. So how much? So how much are you trying to make these guys symmetrical, or how far the other way can they go before you're, you know, trying to rein them back in? What's the kind of um, spectrum that you're working on? Well, again, you know, very individual, obviously. It is individual because in tennis you have uh, players that that have different styles. Uh, some play with an open stance. Some play with a closed stance. The ones that are playing with a closed stance, which basically means that you're stepping into the court, you know. So you're, if you're a right-handed player, you're stepping in with your left leg. So you're going to have um, an imbalance there straight away because your one one leg is continually doing the the um, foundation uh, foundation work. So and you're going to have one hip that's going to be pivoting as as well and rotating as well so there's an incredible amount of, uh, amount of imbalances there and that has to do with also the style of the player as well um, also you have the the single hand backhand and you have the double handed backhand so those are elements that you have to look at as well and um, 
and also with some players that are just incredibly stiff and incredibly tight. So uh, the limitations that that causes and the um, the issues that can cause, you know, you, you, you to be continually uh, working on those things and, and designing programs individual for the athlete. I've never been a huge fan of Dick. Uh, uh, call it fitness or, or movement with with uh, tennis players because there's just so many issues in that group that you cannot uh, zoom in on or you don't get the chance to. So I've I've found that a lot of success in working with, for example, junior players has been four players or less in a group, so that you can really zoom in on those issues and also those uh, specific styles that those players have. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you kind of um, alluded to something that I wanted to ask you. Uh, a little bit later on, but we might as well come to it now. Uh, from Stu Roach uh, at Marquette, um, different SNC for single and dual-handed backhand. Obviously, you mentioned it just then. How would w- what kind of things are going to differ in a program depending on single or double-handed backhand? Well, you're going to find with a, a double-handed player, they're going to have more rotation to to the backhand side. So there's already there's an imbalance there because they're obviously got two hands on on the grip of the racket. And if they're right-handed players, they're going to be bringing that right shoulder a lot more around um, to the left hip, so to say. So, uh, yeah, definitely there's, there's different issues, and, and it's a, a total diff, uh, uh, different biomechanical setup as well because of the, the plant of the, the front foot um, and, of course, that, that shoulder turning. But, you know, one of the tests I do, and I don't do a lot of tests with athletes, but rotation is such an important aspect in tennis. Um, as we know, that 80% of the body is rotational. So, you know, we've got to work on those things, especially in tennis. So one of the tests I'll do is, is basically what they do at the Tight Lice Institute. Uh, Greg Rose does it, where you have the athlete sitting on a chair and um, you have a stick placed behind their, their neck that they're holding with their hands as if they were holding a squat bar, for example. And holding their knees together, I'll be holding their knees together and they're going to rotate to their forehand side, and you're going to basically measure what that, that distance is and then rotate to their backhand side, so their left side if they're a right-handed player. And uh, usually the, the difference is around about, they're getting around about 20% extra rotation to the left side. So already you can see where we're going there with, with imbalances in the body with a, um, a double-handed player. It's not so much with the single-handed players. You'll, you'll find... The single-handed players, more of the issues are wrists, um, rotator issues because of that, that velocity of the ball and they've only got one hand on the racket. Uh, but with the double-handed players, there's a lot more hip issues, a lot more QL issues, lower back. Um, and uh, yeah, those are the two main main areas or two main differences between a single-handed backhand player and a, a double-handed player. And that that's why it's important for... Um, coaches and, and trainers that are involved with tennis players to understand those two things and to look for those two things um, when they're working with players. That single-handed backhand looks so much better, though, doesn't it? Oh, when you when you look at guys like when you look at guys exactly, yeah. um, it's just it's just poetry in motion. But uh, then again, you got Rafa Nadal's backhand doesn't look too bad either as a, a double-handed backhand. So yeah. So, I mean, it, you kind of touched on another one that was uh, was from Stu, and that was uh, preferred performance evaluations for tennis. Obviously, you touched on the, the screening aspect that you're not um, 
you're not doing you're not doing tons of. But what what performance evaluations are giving are you um, are you giving your guys? I'm all about movement. So you know, I've I've never been a big stats guy, a, a numbers guy, um, a stopwatch guy. To be honest, I'm all about efficiency of movement and. Um, working a lot on balance, working a lot on posture, working a lot on ground force application and the angle of the foot. Those are three of the most important things that I look at in, in movement. My, my, my method or my, my system is really geared around efficient movement for the athlete. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not big on the tests. I do have a, a, a test I sometimes do with junior players, which, which is really more just for their fun in, in terms of a foot, a foot speed test. Um, a, uh, a vertical test, um, an agility test on the court, which involves deceleration and, and acceleration, which are, of course, two important things on, on the tennis court. So, um, you know, those are just things that they love to challenge themselves with. I'm also not big on having group uh, testing sessions because it just becomes a comparison from one kid to the other that all he wants to do is beat, beat the other guy in the group. So if I'm ever going to be doing a... Um, a general test on the athletes, then it's going to be individual. So, you know, they're competing against themselves, so to say, or, or trying to better what they did last time. So that's, that's my viewpoint on, on the testing side. Um, you know, I, I, I see no, uh, no use in, in, in doing track running as such for tennis because it's a sport where you're running uh, 5 to 10 meters, stop, start, turn, change, uh, accelerate, decelerate, you know, it's a tra transitional speed sport. It's not a speed sport. So, um, you know, those are the things that I'll do with, with the players, but I don't know, maybe it's, I've been 22 years in the business where I've watched, uh, I, I don't know how many thousands of tennis players and evaluated and, and it just becomes one of those things that it, it's an, an instinct type of, of, of thing that you just know what they need. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there any, um, Especially for young players, obviously in football you've got to test the test the uh, the younger academy kids certain times of the year, you know, uh, and do specific testing protocols. Is that a similar for like governing bodies like the LTA? Do you, do do kids twelve to fifteen have to do a certain amount of testing to see where they rank and things like that? Is that is that happening in tennis? Um, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of the LTA. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I don't know exactly what they do, but um, you know, when I worked for the Dutch Tennis Federation, yes, there was. Um, there were certain tests, um, a throwing test. You know, your 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 arm ability of, of throwing a ball, for example. There was uh, shuttle tests. Uh, I think they might have used the Cooper test back then. Um, a lateral test, for example, because of course tennis is seventy percent lateral. Um, and a footwork test as well. So, yes, they do have standardized tests. But, you know, here's the funny thing, Rob, and I'm sure there's a lot of coaches out there can, can uh, hear where I'm coming from, is that some of your best players are your worst athletes. Uh, you know, and then some of the kids that do well in the, in the performance tests or the fitness tests are not the best players. So there's, there's seriously no link there. And, of course, we, we, we talk about having a better athlete makes a better player later on, and that's – one of my foundations as well is that make build the athlete to make the better player later. So, um, but it's just funny with, with with tests. It becomes one of the main reasons why I don't do a lot of tests is it becomes a competitive thing between each other. 
And also sometimes it just doesn't correlate with the skills and, and what's actually needed to, to win on a court or, or win on a field, for example. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've touched on it a couple of times um, with regards to acceleration and deceleration. So another one from Stu, um, looking at how much attention you put on, on foot strength when considering um, obviously the aggression of the, the acceleration and deceleration. So is that something that you would focus heavily in your program with regards to foot strength? Absolutely. Um, you know, again, it, it all starts from the ground up. We build the athlete from the ground up. Um, you know, if you've got weak ankles, you've already got a, a, an energy leak there, so to say. So, um, you know, I do a lot of ankle work with the athletes probably every day. Um, one of the, the things in my, my method is that they do a um, what we call a buff, which is balance under fatigue. So it's it's a balance exercises after their workout, and it's not uh, a dynamic or explosive, so to say. It's just you know, it would be standing on a single leg, uh, tossing a ball back and forth. So and already is recruiting a lot of ligaments and tendons in the ankle. So that is our, our ankle strength work that is done every single day because I find ankles are one of the most important thing. Getting onto the the deceleration and acceleration work. Part of our warm-up would include um, some off-the-mark speed, for example, the loading of the legs. I don't believe in the first step. I believe in the first push. So we're teaching that athlete how to lower the legs and to accelerate. And then deceleration, teaching the athlete a lower center, center of gravity into small steps. One of the worst uh, cues in tennis or in sport is get on your toes where you hear the coach shouting, get on your toes. It's not getting on your toes. If you want to be a great ballet dancer, you want to go to the Bolshoi in, in Moscow, then you get on your toes. But as an athlete, you want to learn how to use the ball of the foot. So, um, again, it's, it's great movers know the angles of their feet. They know the ground application better. Um, you know, Movement is a taught skill, and this is something that a, a lot of athletes still don't understand out there is that it's a skill, just like learning how to um, kick a ball throw a ball, hit a serve, whatever it may be, and it's a, it's a, it's a learned skill. So, um, yeah, we include a lot of deceleration, acceleration uh, drills into the program. Um, and, of course, in a sport like, like tennis, it's, it's transitional speed. So it's even more important uh, to teach the athlete how to decelerate properly. Again, that's why I say it's no use for me doing a 40-yard sprint or, or, you know, and they run through the tape, for example. That has no benefit to a tennis player. Um, in tennis, they're never getting up to pure speed. So um, I would, I'd probably say deceleration is even more important than, than acceleration or, or pure speed in, in tennis and squash, if you like. Mm-hmm. So when, that, when the guys are practicing, so Kevin Anderson, for instance, is there any way that you're kind of monitoring his, his train load and, and periodizing in the build-up to a, um, a Grand Slam, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I started with, with Kevin, which was November of 2014, um, he had had some, some serious issues with, with his left knee. Um, so, you know, we had to, to be very careful with there. And, of course, monitoring last year, um, we had to be careful with the amount of load of acceleration, deceleration exercises he was doing because as coaches, we've got to look at the bigger picture, not just our physical program, but what they're doing in their um, skills and their game skills and their practices with their coaches. 
So it's not about us as what we're doing in our physical training uh, segment with the athlete. We've got to understand the whole load that's being placed on the athlete. Uh, Kevin, Kevin's a, a you know a, a six foot eight. He's he's a big guy. He's two hundred and fifteen pounds. So that's a lot of load that has to come down for uh, balls that are low to the ground or decelerating, moving up to the net, for example. So yes, uh, definitely have to monitor him every day. Be on top of that. He's he's great at communicating. Um, you know, I compare him sometimes to to a Formula One driver. Um, you know, I just read Michael Schumacher's book of a, an athlete that I really admired because his communication back to his coaches and his team made him a better athlete, made the car faster. Um, you know, and this is a thing that I try and educate the athletes I work with is that their opinion and their feedback is going to make them ultimately better in, in, at the end of the day. So, you know, it's not just a, a one-way communication um, uh, factor. It's, it's two-way communication, and the feedback an athlete can give us makes them better. So, yeah, Kevin does incredibly well with letting him know, for example, um, you know, we do a plyo session or um, an acceleration or, or deceleration agility uh, session, he'll let us know the next day, hey, I'm, I'm feeling it a little bit, maybe we'll just go easy on um, this certain movement, you know, serve and volley, for example, because that's very aggressive, it's a very uh, aggressive linear pattern of, of um, sprinting up to the net and then stopping. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's key. It's key to an athlete's health. And, and I would say because of his communication back to the team, um, you know, he had an injury-free year last year completely. And that was one of the key factors to him reaching the top 10 is that, you know, when you're injury-free, you, you, you gain confidence, you gain momentum. And, um, again, just the key of, of good communication and good teamwork of, of the coaches, the, the physios, the, the trainers working together, no egos, and great communication. Mm -hmm. Nice. So just gonna, uh, I'm just conscious of time, uh, but I just want to ask you another a question from uh, another one from Stu with regards with regarding different surfaces and how your program would change or does change? Does it change when switching from clay to hardcore? Or I don't, I don't know the exact. Um, is it? Is it Mm -hmm. Hard cart to grass, hard cart to yeah. play. Okay. Yeah, uh, three. Uh, you know, basically, we have three main surfaces in, in in tennis today. We have hard court, we have uh, clay, and grass, of course, which um, of course is is uh, mostly in in uh, the UK at, at Wimbledon, Birmingham, and then there's one or two tournaments in Holland and and Germany during uh, June, July during that that time. Um, a few years back, they used to play on indoor carp, which was an incredibly fast uh, surface. You can just imagine uh, facing a serve at, at uh, 150 miles an hour on carpet, how quick that would skid off, off the surface. But, you know, that's really one of the, 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 the really cool things about tennis is that what other sport has different surfaces that you can think of? Um, you know, that you have to be... Uh, to be number one in the world in, in tennis or to be the best, you have to be great on all three surfaces. A few years ago, you could get away with maybe just playing well on clay and then missing the grass court season, um, you know, and, and you could do that. Today, you can't do that. A guy like Rafa Nadal and, and Novak Djokovic have had to develop their games uh, for all three surfaces. And um, 
Novak still hasn't won the French Open, even though he's he's number one in the world, and and I think he's won uh, oh maybe what nine, ten Grand Slams, but still hasn't won the the, the French Open on clay. So yes, the the training is different. Um, again, an area of of an experienced coach and trainer is that the training uh, intensity and style has to change uh, before they. Uh, play a different surface. So, for example, I prepared Kevin for the hard court season in December, um, uh, where where we teach him how to land properly, how to how to um, you know when we're working at plyometrics, for example, we're teaching good landing mechanics. Uh, you know, height is is no issue for me. I, I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in how is he landing and how is that body and those knees and hips absorbing that that force from the ground, for example. When we move to clay, uh, a lot of eccentric work because you're sliding. So I'd use, for example, the ultra slide board where I'd have Kevin doing a lot of slide movements on on the. Um, slide board before he goes out onto the clay. It's also a great tool to, to um, condition an athlete for, for the clay from a confidence point of view. A lot of players are, are scared to slide on the clay, so that's another area. And then, of course, the grass. Uh, the ball stays lower. Um, sometimes the ball does nothing at all. It, it, it just dies when it hits the grass. So we need the players to be lower and have a center lower of gravity on the court. So yeah, you can you can just see where I'm going here of how different all three surfaces are and um, how tough it is for athletes that, for example, Kevin's height or, um, I mean, John Isner is, is six foot nine. Uh, these guys are incredibly tall and they're getting balls uh, maybe half a meter or lower off the, off, off the surface. So you can just imagine how low they've got to get down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um- so I'm like I say I'm just conscious of time. Um, don't want to completely take up your all your Sunday. But where can people keep in touch with what you've got going on? I know I mentioned the uh, the site a little bit earlier. So maybe just talk about where people can maybe get in, get in touch with you, where they can find you on social media, and a little bit about your website. Sure, um, Twitter at Alistair McCall. Uh, then I've got my Facebook page, which is McCall Method, and. Um, as well as my website, www.themacawmethod.com. Cool. So, so what was the, obviously, as we discussed at the start with the, with the kind of consultancy thing, what was the um, thought behind the website just to give you a bit of a uh, kind of a presence on, on the internet and somewhere, somewhere uh, a place that people can find you and learn about you? Sure. It's, it's just a great platform for, um, you know, another part of my business, which is consulting. Uh, consulting parents in sport, consulting athletes, which I consult athletes around the world um, on their program or their performance training or, or whatever it may be, and, and coaches as well. Um, it's also a page where uh, you can see details on my uh, presentations and, and um, doing talks around the world with, with coaches and athletes. So uh, that's, that's the main function. And of course, I've got some, some products on there from the McCall Method range. Uh, part of my method is using a lot of equ- uh, functional equipment like half foam rollers, um, uh, tubes, bands, stretch traps, etc. Cool. Well, I'll um, like I do all the time with the, every episode. I'll put all the links uh, on uh, on the website. So, thanks for your time, mate. Really appreciate you uh, you coming on and, and having a chat and talking us to talking to us about what you've been doing. Rob, it's been fun, and I really appreciate it again for uh, 
for what you do for our industry and, and making us coaches better. Absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. All right, I'll, uh, I'll keep in touch. Thanks, Rob. Bye. All right, speak soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 68 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoy the chat with Alistair. Just before we go, a big thanks to both Val Performance and Train With Push for sponsoring the podcast today. So as I mentioned previously, the Nord Board has now been released. So if you want more information about that product, you can get over to valveperformance.com. If you want to get in touch with the, the Push Band guys, get over to trainwithpush.com and also check out their latest version of their app, so version 2.0. So thanks for your continued support of the podcast, and I will speak to you in episode 69.